Public CEO Report is a podcast that provides insights about the public sector and public policy for the benefit of decision makers and leaders powering our communities. I'm your host, writer Todd Smith, and today we're joined by Frank Zerunyan, Professor of the Practice of Governance at the Sol Price School of Public Policy at the University of Southern California, and a three-term mayor and current council member at the City of Rolling Hills Estates. Frank is also an executive board member of the California Contract Cities Association. Frank, welcome to the Public CEO Report. Thank you very much, Ryder. It gives me absolutely great pleasure to be with you because I'm among those people who absolutely cherishes your success in Trepepe Smith because I can say, as you know, I knew you when. You did know me when I was a little pipsqueak, still trying to figure out what this whole local government thing was all about a decade over, over a decade ago at this point. So, Indeed, um, indeed. That was a long time ago. But to your credit, uh, you have been extremely successful, uh, including working for my city. Uh, have, you have made a difference. Thank you. Well, that's very kind of you, Frank. I appreciate that. It's uh, a great pleasure having an awesome team over here at your Puppy Smith and also having a lot of mentors out there in the local government world, including yourself, who kind of um, helped me figure it out, right? I mean, this is uh, local government is both, as we're going to discuss today, it's part uh, intelligence and academia and putting theory to practice. It's part just on the job training and figuring it out because it's boots on the ground for government. And uh, it's a very complex world, but having good mentors in the space and uh, learning from them and remaining humble enough to hear people out and hear what they have to say is, I think, part of what it takes to be successful in local government. So I appreciate your guidance and feedback over the many years. Pleasure. Uh, all right. Well, so here we are. Tell me a little bit about your career in local government. This isn't about me. It's about you. Ah, well, um, my career in local government, uh, although... Um, I will get to the personal side and, and what was intended. Um, but it began as a, um, um, a planning commissioner at the request of the then mayor uh, in the city of Rolling Hills Estate. I was practicing law. Uh, he was a lawyer as well by training. And uh, my practice related a lot of land use work, uh, represented a lot of developers, banks, and governments with respect to uh, land use and finance, et cetera. So uh, it was a natural for me to be on the planning commission and he requested that I serve on the planning commission. I became chair of the planning commission and it just happened that that year, uh, Barbara Rao, my good friend who passed away, uh, blessed be his me her memory, um, and I uh, was asked by her to take her spot on the council at that point. And uh, it was um, a kind of a lifetime of, of a, uh, uh, a desire, I should say, on my part to go back, to bring back to my family the public service component that was stolen from my family about a century ago. My great-grandfather... Uh, was a school board member, and my great uncle was a graduate of uh, uh, the American University in, in Turkey at the time at the Ottoman Empire, and both very learned people. Um, and in fact, when I completed my first term in office, I said I completed the term of office that my great-grandfather was not able to finish as a result 
of the fact that he was murdered in office uh, during the first genocide of the 20th century. So it's really personal to me. It's personal to my family and my desire to serve. As you know, I serve with all I've got. And uh, that's because of, of this personal background and personal history. I've spoken about this in my community and, and in other uh, publications, in other interviews that I've given. Uh, but the first time you're asking this question. So uh, it is very personal, but it's been a terrific journey. I've learned so much. Um, you know, when I met you uh, well, well over a decade ago, I was completing, if you recall, almost my first decade of, of uh, serving in office. And I was actually becoming president of California Contract mm. Cities at the time. Um, and you were just kind of launching your your uh, your business at the time, and um, it's been a great journey. As you, I've, I've I've like I'm like a sponge. I tell my students I'm a student for life. I learn every day, and you said a word which is extremely important, both in governance as well as uh, um, you know learning is humility, right? Um, and sometimes I feel bad because some of our electeds lack that level of humility to be mm. able to approach public service, which I think is critical to being able to serve the public. What distinguishes us here in the United States from other countries that I've taught, as you know, I, I'm a global professor. I teach around the globe and I've seen various different cultures, no offense, but what distinguishes us, I think, especially uh, in the United States and local governments is that we serve in decentralized governments and that we are the closest to the people that we serve. That is very different than most of the world where they have centralized forms of governments where most people that serve them are further away from them. Mm -hmm. um, and that creates a problem. I mean, look at uh, us too. And in, in a sense, the federal government, the, the popularity rating of Congress uh, maybe dismal, but the popularity rating of Rolling Hills Estates Council members is in the 70 percentile range. Much more trusted, much more Absolutely. trusted local government. No than question about it. I don't say it because it's Rolling Hills Estates. I think my colleagues in various local governments enjoy this kind of a level of trust, which is, I sure. think, beautiful. Totally agree. I mean, I think uh, at the end of the day, when you can actually interact with and see your elected representative in the grocery store or in the church pew or walking their dog down the trail or, you know, wherever you run into them, um, it makes it much more real and make, you know, and, and that familiarity breeds trust. And we just, I think people are generally much more familiar uh, with the realities of what's going around them with their city government and their access to be able to get into it, or they have friends and family who spend time on that. So they at least, at least have a kind of indirect connection to what's going on in their local city, which is of course why it's so important for cities to engage with their public because it builds the kind of trust that you need to make a real change in an organization or within a, within a given, a given geographic sphere. Absolutely. And, and uh, your, your topic and your discipline is communication. I mean, let's face it, what better form of communication than running into someone in the food store and face-to-face yeah. -face having a very candid and good conversation about that pothole that may be in the middle of that street. So it, it's really cool to be able to serve at the local level. Yeah. So you 
uh, you had made mention too of something I didn't mention in your intro, which is you're also a, I mean, obviously you're credentialed if you're teaching at USC, but you also have uh, your law degree as well. So you, you've done uh, legal work, practicing attorney. Um, are you still an actively practicing attorney? I am active with my bar license, but I no longer practice. Of course, I don't simply don't have the time to practice law, even though I do provide um, from time to time, whether it's my former firm or other attorney friends that call me and I do provide counsel here and there, but I don't actively practice now. Okay. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about this um, bridging of academia with the real world. Uh, and maybe I'm being a little bit of a pejorative in asking that question because it implies there's a huge separation there, but um, there's certainly lots I'm of conversations. Yeah, well, and I guess that's the point, right? I mean, you are one of the few uh, council members who also is a professor teaching the next generation and teaching, frankly, within the space that you are uh, providing your public service in, right? So how do you experience um, the bridging of those two worlds? Uh, and I guess that could span several fronts, right? Like relationships, but also just sheer public policy idea and development within within academia and how that ultimately makes its way into um, local governance ideas, plans, initiatives, and programs? Well, first, I'm, of course, lucky to be able to teach at an institution uh, that is um, uh, extremely capable. And in my school specifically, um, the best public policy school in the West, um, and uh, certainly uh, always top five in the last decade, uh, in the country out of 280 plus public affairs schools. So a very high level and, and you know, delighted to have and blessed to have amazing students, um, of course, that we can pick from and admit to our school uh, to do some of the work. Um, my approach and, and one of the reasons why I exist at our school is, of course, what you mentioned, you know, my practice and and also uh, coming from the uh, world of public administration that is a bit more theoretical, uh, of course. And, you know, I'm one of those that have actually voted on policy and have implemented policy as opposed to theorize about policy. Now, don't get me wrong, theory is extremely important. And my colleagues in academia do us a great favor by theorizing and helping us perhaps with mechanisms that we can work to implement. But I always say to my colleagues when they come to my office on a research project or something, my first question always is, how will this advance society? Mm -hmm. That's my critical question. Because if it's a theory that's gonna be in a book uh, in Doheny Library somewhere, or will be read by other academics uh, for the purpose of glorifying academia, uh, my personal interest is not there. Uh, I am always interested in research, um, and I'm always interested in research that will advance society now. Yep. And there's a lot of talk, and I always tell my students, politics is the world of talking a lot and sometimes too much and not accomplishing much. Public administration is the discipline of not talking that much, but actually doing things on the ground. Mm 
-hmm. So I like public administration. I'm, I'm naturally drawn to public administration because it's the field of implementation. And that's what I like most about what I do because my classes are all about case studies. My classes are all about my experience and sharing that experience of 20 plus years in public service, both at the local and state level. As you know, we didn't touch on that, but uh, Governor Schwarzenegger appointed me to this medical board in 2006, and I served at the regulatory uh, position and, and uh, did bunch of regulation and discipline of doctors who, uh, on behalf of 38 million medical consumers of the state. So I was a uh, consumer uh, protector, so to speak, in my role as, as a regulator on the medical board, which is one of the busiest boards of the state, by the way. Yep. Uh, well over 150,000 licensees uh, in the state of California that practice all over the nation and the world, for that matter, with a California license. So it was a very busy board, and I've learned a lot there as well. Um, but state office is a bit different, and Sacramento Bee one time asked me to question board member, what is the difference between your service at the local level and at the state level? My answer was the level of frustration. <laughs> <laughs> mm, yes. Well, uh, you know, uh, I guess I was going to partly say something. Oftentimes that frustration emanates from the inefficiency of government and getting things done. Um, but I also am frequently having to remind people that government wasn't necessarily designed to be super efficient. Right? Like I'm, I'm fairly confident the founding fathers didn't didn't set out to make uh, our federal government structure particularly efficient. It was much more about governance and protection of rights than anything else. Given their fears of government, they had been uh, recently escaped from in their efforts to uh, lead the revolution. So. Um, I know, I just think about that every time I hear about the frustrations people have with government and its inability to do something. Uh, and it's kind of like, well, that's baked into the process, guys. So, Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And in fact, I write quite a bit on constitutional law with one of my, it has been one of my favorite topics in law school and, and, and thereafter. Um, as you may have read some of my blogs, I have a faculty blog page at, at USC and and I write quite a bit on topics of uh, constitutional law. Um, although during the, the war in Armenia, I wrote a lot about the caucuses and the uh, um, international law that relates to it, former Soviet law that relates to it, because I'm a student of it. I've always studied that and I've always enjoyed writing about it. But you're absolutely right. I mean, decentralized form of government was uh, certainly intended uh, to be multifaceted and not necessarily to make it easy and efficient and for the majority always to win because in a lot of parliamentary systems, for example, majority trumps. I mean, they do anything they want yep. uh, without much of checks and balances, uh, a la California, perhaps, uh, today. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, no offense to my friends in, in state legislature in California, but, and I have many, as you know, um, but I don't think no state should be subject to a supermajority of one party. And I don't care which party. You know me. I, I am not a partisan. Um, I care about public administration first and foremost. It's not about ideology, which is, by the way, killing both the state and the nation. Um, 
And uh, instead of focusing on what unites us, we're focusing on ideology one way or the other, and damn be the other side. Our tolerance level has gone down, our empathy has gone down, and therefore we have the polarization that we have, both in the nation and the state. I mean, there, there should be no reason why you should be recalling a governor, for example, but yet there is. Uh, and I'm not advocating it, don't get me wrong, uh, that's not my point. My point is there should not even be an issue. But obviously there is, right? Sure, right. Uh, there's so, animosity angst out there to motivate Right, exactly. And, and that's what I dislike, actually, because, and that is created on the basis of ideology, and that is created on the basis of one side dictating pretty much everything. And again, I, I don't mean to um, uh, criticize my friend's... Uh, uh, who happen to be uh, in the state legislature, a lot of them are, are dear friends and very good people and doing very good work. Uh, but at the same time, whether Democrat or Republican, too much power is not very good. In fact, too much power, as we know from academic literature, corrupts. Corrupts. So I think one thing I, I've kind of observed, too, just thinking about the past year of the pandemic uh, and the expansive powers and emergency powers that were handed over to executives across the nation um, and overall government policy is that more than at any point in, you know, 20 plus years, 40 plus years, really maybe going back to World War II, um, have we seen an incursion of government into the day-to-day -day life of the individual, right? And whether that was happening because of county policy, state policy, federal policy, or city policy, it was it was the presence and the involvement in the day-to-day -day, um, lives of more people than ever before that both created an opportunity for public engagement, certainly, but also raised the volatility level, I think, of the public's perception uh, of government itself. So... Um, I think that level of just sheer to sheer day to day interaction with government was something that a lot of members of our society had not really lived in with before. And it's it's kind of framed their worldview or caused them to be much more engaged and opinionated about what's going on. I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing, but there are consequences to having a lot more government and doing so in such a radical shift within a couple month period of going from, you know, modestly laissez faire to you have to stay home, right? Like uh, that's a huge degree of change for people to really swallow and not have their worldview changed about what government is and why they should be more involved in it. Yeah. So uh, yes, it's unprecedented to be honest. And uh, in fact, early on, I was debating the issue of, of you know, I, I've written on um, the municipal governments and uh, both charter as well as uh, general law cities in my Fordham Urban Law Journal article. And I've talked about police powers and the importance of police powers to govern. But I never thought that we would get to the level of, of uh, recognizing and using police power to this degree. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, I've argued um, um, that for the most part, uh, we need to be very careful about this and, and maybe we learn from this in a positive way and are able to balance police power um, with individual rights and the importance of individual rights. And I'm hopeful that we will all really look at this as, as a teaching moment, uh, so to speak, when something runs amok. Mm -hmm. um, and... Um, I'm not saying that, uh, you know, uh, completely it run amok, but to a degree I am, I presume, because 
I was vociferously uh, writing to the Board of uh, Supervisors, for example, on the inconsistency of the use of police powers with respect to COVID and some of our businesses or some of our regions who were differently affected by COVID and the one-size-fits-all approach that we have taken to COVID to kind of kill a bunch of businesses, to be honest mm. with you, and, and also an entire class of students. Um, and, and all of this will be written about in the future. We don't know it yet, the effects of this had on an entire generation of kids um, that we, I believe, wrongfully held back from going to school uh, and, and making a one-size-fits-all policy uh, that I don't think science justified. Um, and again, you know, it's, I guess some people may debate the issue, but I've read a lot of literature on the science part, the children, uh, effect on children, uh, the mitigation measures, etc. I believe we could have done better for the children uh, by mitigating a bunch of things and taking certain risks. You know, look, public policy is risk. Yeah. There is no such thing as making a policy without risk. And this pandemic, the way I have seen it, first, it was wrongfully politicized by everyone, from the man on top on down. So there's blame to go around, all around. And again, I'm trying to be ecumenical in my blame, uh, and not necessarily blame one party over the other uh, or one individual over the other. I think there's plenty of blame to go around. This was literally politicized unnecessarily. This was a pandemic, but yet people were making policy on the basis of zero-sum games. In other words, people were making policy on the basis of complete risk aver averseness as yeah. opposed to managing or mitigating risk, as one of my colleagues, uh, in fact, my interim dean, Dana Goldman, uh, told me, uh, I think it was a brilliant thing to say, um, uh, that we need to more focus on mitigating risk rather than being completely risk averse, because we don't do policy that way. Just imagine how many cars we would stop from driving if we were risk averse. Yeah, you know, well, how many people I, we would not allow to walk on a pavement, for God's sake. Yes. So it, it's crazy to think of it that way. And I know the arguments about, you know, the, the transfer of the disease, it's different, etc. I get it. But still, there are mitigation factors and we could have used, we could have been more smart about this. And we were. And again, water under the bridge. But I hope that uh, my point is that we learn from this experience and we're able to balance the equities of uh, individual rights, the, 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 the Bill of Rights, over the, uh, the police powers, uh, because it could become dangerous. I mean, you know, uh, forefathers did not intend for government to have this much power. I'm curious, Frank, do you think that uh, our scientists, academia, and public policy folks are up to a non-biased complete review of the decisions that were made to come up with some real good answers? Or is it going to be, uh, is history going to be written by the victors and it's going to be driven by uh, each side coming up with its narrative about how the other side screwed it up? 
Well, I, to be honest with you, uh, uh, based on where we are in our polarization, I would say it's the latter, mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately. But I hope that there are some objective academics as well as practitioners who would look at this as a learning experience and objectively, without regard to the politics of this, I mean, for God's sake, I mean, if there is a mitigation factor of wearing a mask, for example, why is that a big deal? Why is that political? Why is that all of a sudden an infringement? It's elevated to the level of the Bill of Rights, mm -hmm. right? At the same time, why is it that it's, you're shamed if you believe in your Bill of Rights and if you believe in your um, individual rights, you're shamed to believe in that. So all I'm talking about here is the balance, right? I, I want to see a well-balanced, uh, um, you know, uh, assessment of this down the road. I may write about it as well. I, I, I'm thinking about it because... Um, there may be public administration lessons. Again, I'm not interested in the politics of it, and, and, and to me that's really secondary. But from a public administration standpoint, there may be some lessons learned here um, and that, that we may be able to uh, put into a, a, a writing. Um, and I'm going to think about it, and I have some doctoral students that uh, may work on it with me, and we'll see. But... Uh, I hope that we learn from this writer because this was not a pleasant experience. I mean, I doubt very much that you would run into Americans that would say, oh, yeah, sure. That was very pleasant. Uh, yeah, it was you know, awesome. Yeah, we crushed it. Was it was awesome. It was a great time that, you know, I was uh, locked in my house and I couldn't send my children. I became now the teacher of my children. Oh, it was no problem. It, it, was, a, it, it was a piece of cake. I doubt very much you're going to find many people no. who say that. No. And I would just say, in general, the... Uh, if there's going to be a general sense that um, there were a lot of things that went wrong, then let's learn what those things were that went wrong and try to improve. I kind of we have a motto here at our firm, which is ABL: always be learning. And uh, that means we, where we identify a mistake has taken place, we talk about it openly and we embrace it and we say, "Great, that was a that was a bummer," but we live to fight another day and we're going to learn from that mistake and everybody's going to talk about it so we don't repeat it. Isn't that a great way to go? That, that's the way to do it, Ryder. In fact, uh, there's plenty of uh, leadership literature. I tell my students that I know of no leader that is recognizable at the world level who has not failed. There's no such thing. Right. Leadership is all about learning from your failures and actually really perfecting them to the level where a bunch of followers go, wow. Right. So that's why, to me, it's more about um, being objective. And by the way, I mean, it's, it's sad, perhaps, and not that I'm affected by it uh, personally, but it's sad to learn sometimes that objectivity today is not good. Either you have to follow a narrative and, and follow that narrative to whatever degree it takes you, um, and calling it spade to spade or calling it objectively, if it's good for this person, it's also good for that person. If it's bad for that person, is also bad, does not work. Right. If yep. you have a favorite person, then everything is good for your favorite person. And the same thing for the not favorite person is not good. Yeah. It's not good. 
Well, and I'd say, yes, agreed. And we are uh, we are wandering into territory far, far asunder from uh, the the broad or the the narrow area that uh, I was particularly fired up to get into in discussion with you about the academia. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, for us to talk about local government and the politics uh, that result in public administration direction, you know, you kind of have to deal with all these issues. I mean, yeah, I, I think I think uh, there's plenty of frustration out there. And and frankly, I think within public administration, there's probably a huge desire to have some real good understanding of what works and what doesn't, right? What was the right decision? What was the wrong decision? I'm not sure the politics level is particularly interested in that, but I think the public administration level is very interested in that. Yeah, and I'm proud of most, in fact, uh, um, a a lot of our local government uh, leaders that, you know, I certainly interact with at Contract Cities, Liga Cities, SCAG, et cetera, I'm proud of all them, all of them, as they are trying very hard. Um, I think to put uh, uh, politics aside um, and try to focus on public administration and help their own communities. I mean, you know, some of the major issues in the state, for example, uh, take housing. Um, housing has become uh, all of a sudden. Uh, an ideological belief and damn with everything else that you believe and and housing, you know, housing, housing, housing. Yet the reality of housing at the local level in order to be able to implement has nuances. Mm. Um, and ignoring those nuances does not deliver housing. And nope. it hasn't delivered housing over the last decade that I have seen this push towards housing. And I don't understand why these folks are not getting it. 10 years is not good enough to figure out that implementation is not the same as ideology and that ideology sometimes is not implementable. Maybe we should try something new, right? And that's what you know. I'm hoping that we are at the local level, I think are getting united in trying to propose to the state level that look, ideology does not always work. It may be a good starter for a conversation, no matter what it is. And by the way, I'm not suggesting housing is not an important topic, nor that we don't need it. Quite the contrary, we need housing and it's an important topic, but we need to be able to implement it. We need to be able to build it. With those kind of ideas, we have not been able to build it because you're not taking into account the lay of the land, market forces, you know, uh, quality of life, the the zoning, the, the, the environment, I mean, now you talk to these folks, it's like, and I've said this, uh, uh, I think it was the Orange County Register that, that quoted me on this. I said, if you leave, leave it to these people, they're going to pour concrete all over California and be happy about it at the same time calling themselves an environmentalist. How's that possible? How is killing trees and, and taking up open space uh, for housing become environmentally stewardship? I mean, I, I just don't get it. So uh, I can understand these frustrations. I guess I'd ask you as a as a leader within the academic field and involved, obviously, as you noted, in one of the most successful public policy schools in America, um, how has, has USC tried to tackle this issue and taken it on from an academic perspective to provide some context and understanding for local government officials to develop better policy ideas or to at least figure out where things haven't worked for the last 10 years? Well, first of all, uh, USC does, uh, and I, I don't speak for the entire university nor for my entire school, obviously, but um, but at the same time, um, 
I have great colleagues who do very good research on various different topics, uh, whether it's uh, uh, law enforcement. Uh, my good friend Errol Southers uh, has done a great deal of work, for example, or on the topic of homelessness. Gary Painter and his shop at uh, at the uh, Price School has done a lot of research, a lot of work on the topic, um, and as well as uh, others who have. Uh, contributed uh, to the research as well as uh, um, uh, writing um, uh, uh, on this. So mm -hmm. I think uh, we're doing a lot of work. Um, uh, yet we have not yet produced, I'd say, work that is um, really implementable at the local level um, the way I see it. Although I put my students to work in the last cohort uh, in one of our labs, uh, working with SCAG to write a little bit of research that Contract Cities is using to develop uh, the housing proposal that we are making uh, to the state legislature. So some of that research, yes, has come from my students at USC. Um, and uh, I hope that we continue uh, this um, from a more practical and uh, practice-oriented view uh, as opposed to more theoretical views of, you know, uh, don't forget, USC is a global marketplace of sure. ideas as well. So a lot of our colleagues write for the global community, not just the California community or, uh, uh, or the American community. So there's so much work going on that it's hard, hard to pinpoint specifically one aspect of it, but we're all trying, I mean, to uh, be able to be impactful and transformational, which is part of our mission at the Price School, to be able to make a difference, especially uh, in uh, various communities and, and more importantly, underserved communities to uplift them. Uh, because as I always tell my, uh, my students, poverty sucks. Um, and uh, unfortunately, it's a vicious cycle. And we have to do everything we can from a regional standpoint to uplift these communities. Um, you know, affluent communities have a responsibility. Um, I mean, it's happening right now, for example, in the broadband space uh, where we're all banding together, no pun intended, uh, in trying to help regionally uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the, the uh, uplifting of, of communities and, and belonging to the 21st century, especially when it comes to broadband access and uh, sure. the internet. Yeah, uh, foundational uh, technology these days, especially given the last 12 months we've gone through and discovering just how critical high-speed internet access is for things like children learning at home or adults being able to continue working to the extent they have a job that allows them to work virtually and not have to be you know, in a grocery store line, checking out groceries or uh, stocking shelves. Um, I think, you know, Frank, when I think about this a little bit, one thing that missed, uh, maybe maybe my threshold for what I would love to see happening a little bit is for professors to join with council members or city managers at conferences and actually present papers, right, or present some studies that they've done on policy issues to really inform local elected officials and city management types about policy areas with some good rigor and study in them. And you know, you and I both do a lot of conferences together uh, and attend a lot of conferences. And um, you rarely see 
right? The only time we see a professor really presenting at a conference, like a League of Cities conference or a Contract Cities or something like that. And I'm not saying this because I'm dogging on League of Cities or Contract Cities. I think, frankly, there's not a lot of academics that submit to speak at those conferences. But I think if they did and they had some good tangible ideas or studies or research they'd presented, it would be welcomed and very interesting for our local government peers. Ryder, we do some of that in our executive education uh, yes. forum. If you, uh, you've attended some of them and, and you've yep. sent, in fact, some of your staff to them, uh, yep. we're grateful for your support uh, of that. Uh, and we, as you know, match our faculty with practitioners to present best research uh, possible that we have uh, to the practice. So in our context, we do it, but we, you're right, we have not done it at a very large scale conference level where we should be presenting more of this research and work that is implementable, so to speak, at the ground level. I have various colleagues, for example, uh, a year ago, I recall I invited uh, uh, some of my colleagues from the Schaefer Center at uh, the Price School to talk about addiction. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, and uh, particularly, I think it was uh, relatively uh, novel at the time how um, cannabis, for example, was hitting our local governments and the potential ramifications and consequences of, of that, good or bad. Um, so we did a series on that, and uh, we had few of our faculty members present their research, uh, as well as on the topic of addiction. We have an entire center on addiction at the Keck School of Medicine at USC. So I invited uh, um, a couple of my colleagues from there to do it. So we, on a regular basis, do what you're suggesting within our executive education forum, but we have not, you're right, uh, have done it at conferences. Maybe, maybe the exception, and I hope to continue doing that, where you participated recently at the California um, Special District Associations Conference, where we designed the curriculum and delivered executive education, where you actually moderated the panel on communication for disasters. Uh, in fact, I'm thinking another one of those. I'm going to talk to you offline in trying to put a panel together um, on disaster communication because it has been a, a very important topic, especially in California. And today, as you know, we experience a small earthquake, for a example. A little earthquake down there in Inglewood. That's right, that's right. So I, I would love to do one maybe in May. Um, so I'm gonna talk to you offline about that, putting a very good panel together for maybe an hour and a half or so, talk about the importance of communication ahead of time for disaster and what you know that can look like during the disaster as well. So we're doing our share, to be honest with you, and we're unique in what we do at the Price School when it comes to local governments, because there are different programs across the nation that are tremendous, they're amazing. Um, some of our uh, competitor schools across the nation that do programs of executive education, and they're very good at it, and they're great. But not many really focus on local governance as we do. And, and, right. and uh, as you know, our school was founded in City Hall in Los Angeles some uh, 90 plus years ago. Um, so our focus uh, has been always, um, and I hope to make it even more, um, 
local governance centric, so to speak. Um, and I'm delighted to see, in fact, I have like three students right now for whom I've advocated at local government levels to be employed at assistant manager or uh, planner levels. Um, I'd like to see more of that in our local level. Yeah. Well, and, you know, my comment about academic presentations at these conference circuits was not just USC specific, right? I mean, I think that's a general issue. I mean, I, oh, I'm, I'm co-chair of a of a um, institute at Claremont McKenna College that I think, you know, would I think there's some interesting things that they study there. And obviously, there's an MPA program at Cal State Long Beach, and there's an MPA program at uh, and a good University one. of Laverne. And a very good one, by the way. Yes. So there's there's lots of academic institutions in California, many of which are taxpayer backed and supported. Uh, that could be doing some critical research on pragmatic ideas and initiatives that could be better informing our local government agencies and decisions we make or policy outcomes, or at least inform us so we can make better decisions. And um, it would just be nice to see, I kind of sense there's a lot of work going on. And then there's like policymakers over here who are making decisions and there's not enough kind of presentation of that information crossing the transom from academia over into uh, the pragmatic reality of either the elected officials who are making decisions or the city managers who are, um, you know, at the executive level within organizations at the city level trying to help implement policy or bring policy ideas to their council members. And frankly, I think that's probably where it's the best opportunity to inject some of that is take the professional city manager, senior management analyst types who devour some of this information and ideas that come out of academia to find something that's that's useful, helpful, insightful, and then convey that on to their council members as here's some policy initiatives that maybe we should talk about, right? And I, I also can't help but think about that in the context of one of the ideas that I think we view at, at this decentralized governance structure, um, and you can of course tell me if you disagree with this point, is that the idea was we kind of have 50 engines of innovation out there in our country to learn about policy ideas. And then in the state of California, we have 480 plus engines of innovation with 480 different cities, not to mention 50 plus counties that um, can be practicing some policy areas and doing some experimentation almost to see what those outcomes are. And then we can learn from each other. And that's one of the things I've certainly always noted cities are very good at is learning from each other, right? If you see in Rolling Hills Estates that something is going really well in Rolling Hills, that becomes a policy idea that you guys can move on very quickly to adopt, for example, right? So um, I, it would just be nice to see, from my perspective, some more some more of those conduits like USC has implemented in the past of getting, getting information directly injected into the brains of either uh, MPAs and um, city manager types and, and their support staff and or uh, the elected leaders themselves. Yeah, Ryder, uh, let's work on that together. I agree with you. My focus always has been our program at USC, but I would love to be on panels with uh, um, some of my colleagues from uh, Claremont, Long Beach State, uh, Cal, you know, anywhere else that uh, we can bring together in the state um, and actually uh, put our minds to uh, to it and present to um, the constituency that you're referring to. As I said, our, the closest I we've come is, in fact, the city manager summit that we do with contract cities mm -hmm. uh, at USC and also now the special district association that we uh, we've done. I mean, we, we've heard very, very positive reaction and my uh, I'm almost certain this will become an annual thing, just like the City Manager Summit, where we will do this on a regular basis. We had 192 people registered for that program that you were part of. 
Um, and I'd love to do more of that, to be honest with you. But uh, but uh, really, pitching uh, major conferences, I think it's a great idea. You do your share, and I'll do mine. Okay, very well. Well, I, I would agree the associations are good partners to have in that effort, because you can see how quickly it can um, distribute that content, right? Which is one of our philosophies around here for how to make an impact. Um, all right, so Frank, I want to be sensitive to time here. We've actually we've gone on several different tangents today in, in healthy conversations. So I welcome that, and I, that's why we like to have conversations here, not just a directed A to B point uh, in the conversation. Um, anything exciting going on in Rolling Hills Estates uh, that we can talk about? Any big policy objectives you're trying to accomplish there? That where you're seeing your academics translate there, you've been able to provide some additional insights or just maybe something to be said about um, Rolling Hills Estates is a smaller city, right? So it's not. Um, uh, it's it has its own unique challenges as a smaller contract city, but anything any any of the policy policies going on there that you want to chat about? Well, first of all, um, I'm proud of my city, and and as you know, um, you know it's it's a well-run city. I don't say it because uh, I'm on the council, but I have great colleagues uh, who make the uh, running of the city day-to-day uh, -day operation as well as overall policy. A possibility. We have had amazing council members over time. Um, you know, uh, big names, uh, leaders statewide, people like Judy Mitchell, for example, who just retired. Uh, amazing uh, colleague. Uh, and, and, and others, of course, that have served. Um, John Adelman served uh, at the JPIA for a number of years. And um, uh, certainly uh, all of us uh, endeavor to serve in various capacities. And Velvet Schmidt now is in, mm -hmm. uh, definitely an up and coming, in my judgment, uh, in local governance. And uh, um, uh, our newest council member, Debbie Segura, of course, uh, taking the, the filling, very difficult shoes to fill of Judy Mitchell's shoes. but. Uh, Debbie is terrific. So we have really amazing people, have had amazing people and continue to have to run a good government, uh, so to speak. Uh, so I'm very pleased with that. Like you said, like any other, anybody else, we have our own challenges. Uh, our uh, uh, certainly uh, geographic location, as well as uh, um, some of our... Uh, um, you know, uh, topography creates challenges, uh, whether it's the canyons, whether it's wildlife, whether it's uh, animals mixing with people, um, uh, for example, uh, in a relatively urban setting, a semi-rural, of course, community still, 100-year-old um, trees. Uh, so, um, you know, uh, some may say, well, those are good problems to have, but for every community, their issues, their issues, obviously. But uh, for the most part, I think we've done well in uh, managing both our uh, finances. Um, I am most proud of uh, the topic that you've been helping us with, uh, which is our engagement and the level of engagement and communication that we now have with our constituency that we did not have number of years ago. So uh, we now use, as, as you know, with your advice and, and help, uh, top-notch technologies. Um, uh, and uh, we're very uh, visible on social media um, and communicate with our constituency at a much higher level. I've always said an informed constituency is the best form of governance. 
especially at the local level, where transparency and accountability are critical in governing. And I prefer for our constituents to know everything there is to be known about any particular issue before I make a decision. I will make a decision because I'm elected to do so. Sure. But at the same time, I would love it that that decision is based on a very high level of consensus from our community um, and that uh, it's something that there is a high level of buy-in to do. So I wish upon all of my colleagues in various cities to be engaging and, and desiring to hear from constituents. Sometimes what you hear is not what you want to hear, but your job as a facilitator is to find that common ground and to actually smooth that relationship to create an ultimate win-win opportunity for all. And when you're able to do that, when you're able to facilitate at a high level, then you're good. Now, let me say this unequivocally, there is no city that does policy that does not affect someone or someone's negatively sure. or uh, that upsets people, right? Yep. I cannot make everyone happy. That is not possible in policymaking. Uh, I try at a very high level, but not always possible. That being said, it is you know important to listen to those voices as well um, and to respectfully, empathetically hear their concerns and still say no. And that's important too. That's part yep. of leadership as well. That is uh, that is the case. I mean, I totally agree with that point. You're not going to make everybody happy all the time. So um, the trick is to make the best policy decisions you can that uh, are principled and are going to result in long-term benefits to the overall community as much as possible. So yeah, we're in the middle of our general plan. We're uh, finishing up our uh, general plan. Typically, as you know, that's a ten-year document. Uh, uh, so. We're getting there. We're trying to create opportunities for housing in the city, for example. Um, uh, there's a very thoughtful process going on. Um, incidentally, uh, most people don't think of it that way, but we, we are a relatively diverse community in Rolling Hills Estates. Um, and uh, most people don't think that, uh, you know, uh, demographically, we, we have a, a division of various uh, uh, demographic groups in our community. Uh, admittedly, some may not be that large, but uh, uh, recently, for example, someone was asking me in light of the issue of with uh, uh, the Asian American community, for example, most people don't know this, but 30% of our Rolling Hills Estate City demographically is uh, um, uh, ethnically uh, uh, Asian American community. Um, and that's beautiful. I mean, from my perspective, uh, the more that, I mean, you know me, I, I came from different cultures. I sure. was brought up in three different countries and three major cities of the world. Um, and uh, I have an empathetic ear to, uh, uh, to uh, uh, various uh, cultures. And uh, I love uh, seeing various culture play um, under the umbrella of all of our commonality, which we call ourselves Americans. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, well, and Rolling Hills Estates is a beautiful place. Like, everybody wants to live in Rolling Hills Estates, right? I mean, 
it's a it's a lovely community. It's safe community. It has beautiful hillsides, and um, that you know that's a universal truth. It doesn't matter what your background is. That's that that's a, it's a desirable place to live. We see that with many of the um, nice communities that we have the opportunity and to work. The sad with. part, Ryder, is that us attempting to protect what you described has become almost toxic in certain circles. Yeah, where. It's no longer good to protect the tree. It's no longer good to protect open space. It's no longer good to uh, um, to actually deliver a top-notch quality of life, which is very disappointing to even hear. But I'm elected to do that. I will do that regardless of what I hear and regardless of the pushback I get uh, unapologetically. So it is what it is. And... Uh, um, you know, yes, we do in, in, live in a beautiful community, and uh, we are a very welcoming community. Um, we would love to see uh, more people succeed, and we would love to see more opportunities for our next uh, generations. Uh, one of the problems, of course, in my community is uh, that uh, we uh, create opportunities for housing, but not enough to be able for my children, for example, to be able to afford, sure. for that matter, let me put it to you this way, I cannot afford my own house today. Right. So that tells you, it doesn't even have to be my children, but um, but so we do need to create opportunities and we are, we are working in our general plan to create those opportunities um, for people who, uh, especially the next generation, as well as our workforce that works actually on the Hill um, and I'm committed to that, and you'll see it'll 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 work out. Yeah. Well, I think you do touch on one point, and then we're gonna we'll wrap this up here as we're we're chatting. But I think there's a, a an interesting point to be made, which is um, life has trade offs, right? There, and economics is kind of the study of resource allocation and trade offs on those allocations, uh, and that was an area of intense focus for me in my college days, uh, and remains a big area of policy interest in general. But for example, um, there there is a trade-off that takes place between advocating for open space land and the consequences of reducing the available land supply for housing development, right? Like those are yin and yang. You can drive through the beautiful, you can drive along a freeway and see a beautiful open hillside with walking trails and whatnot and say, oh, that's such a nice community amenity. But you can at the same time acknowledge that in creating that amenity, it also creates more demand for housing in the area who want access to the amenity and it reduces the available land supply to build housing. Now, the answer might be, well, we'll increase density. Okay, well, there are other economic consequences to that trade-off too. Um, but to deny the fact that uh, creating open space doesn't have an economic consequence or doesn't constrain the land supply to make it available for, for housing units is naive, right? I mean, that's just, that's not, a, that's not a healthy debate to have a conversation on. It could be a very legitimate policy or you could have had a debate 20 years ago when the land, when the open land was created and said, wait a minute, this could have consequences. Uh, but you know that that debate probably ended 20 years ago when the open when the open lands were declared. And frankly, I don't think most uh, people are ready to abandon their open space at this point. They like their open space. They want the access to the trails. Yeah, that's true. And and uh, certainly speaking for our community, uh, our community is among the few left semi-rural communities with trails, open spaces. Um, as well as beautiful landscape of rolling hills, you know, as our namesake, um, which is true, uh, with pepper trees that go back 900 years, mm -hmm. um, 
and with a level of uh, wildlife. I mean, if you come to my street, you will see chickens running around, peacocks running around, and uh, horses passing by, ponies, dogs, you know, name it, cats, name it, uh, we have them. So uh, ducks. Uh, so it, it's a very vibrant community from that perspective, and, and we certainly like that. Um, and, and I am not naive enough to say that it doesn't come with, with a, a, a consequence. It's just that you need to be able to manage those consequences logically um, and make sure that you distribute. It, it's not about, I, I, this is what I say all the time to people, it's not about wrecking the good that we have, it's about uplifting the bad that we have. If we yeah. manage to create that balance, then we've succeeded. Yeah. Fair point. Well, I think that's probably uh, a good a good way to end this conversation today for as wide wide ranging as it was, because that as a philosophy is a, uh, a, a eminently agreeable thing. I would hope we can all agree on that general idea about the effort to lift up and improve the areas that we all acknowledge are need help and uh, are bad, so to speak. Uh, Frank, I want to thank you. That's today's report. My thanks to Frank for joining us. Um, from the whole public CEO team and myself, writer Todd Smith, thank you for your time today. Thank you, Ryder. I really appreciate it. I look forward to seeing you around. Um, and thank you for all the good work that you're doing, both for our city and for all the 40, 50 other cities that you do good work for. Um, it is well appreciated and uh, much success, much continued success to you. And I really appreciate the time and the conversation today. Thanks, Frank. Thanks for your public service, too. Have a good day. We hope you learned something new and inspiring that'll help you in your public service. Remember, Public CEO has a daily newsletter that is free to those who sign up at publicceo.com. If you have feedback, questions, or guest suggestions for Public CEO Report, please email alex at publicceo.com. <laughs>